I think that the real sort of issues, if you will, are around accommodations um, for employees who either need, you know, a short bit of time off to deal with an emergency situation and that it may not sort of fit into, you know, the FMLA bucket and it may not fit into the ADA bucket. So what are we going to do, right? What is our culture going to be? And so I advise clients a lot in these sort of gray situations, you know, what do they want to do, right? And there's, there's legal implications, but then there's also, it's mostly a, a cultural decision, Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. We've visited the impact of the rising cost of child care on employees and employers a couple times this year. In those previous conversations, we talked about childcare's impact on businesses and the ways organizations can respond to employees' needs. Today, we'll talk about employers' legal responsibilities to caregivers, but we'll also get an employee's perspective on being a caregiver. Joining me is Allison Bowers. Allison is the co-founder of Hutchison Bowers, an Austin-based employment law firm focused on solving employers' workforce problems. Allison is a frequent speaker on employment law topics, and she's been named to the best lawyers and the Texas super lawyers list and has served as an expert witness on the legal sufficiency of an internal investigation. And I'm going to get back with you on that, Allison, because that's always one of my favorite topics for a podcast. So welcome to Good Morning HR, Allison. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here today. So let's start with the human side of the story. Um, you're a lawyer and it surprises us all when we find out that lawyers have uh, lives and uh, souls and are caring people. But you're a caregiver also. Talk about, in, in your talk, uh, you talk about how your, your role as a caregiver affects uh, you as a business owner and an employee. Sure. Um yeah, I was asked to speak about this topic um, to the Austin Bar Association a few months ago um, and spoke on a panel with other lawyer caregivers, um, and each of us had the opportunity to tell our stories and then also to talk about how different areas of the law, including um, employment law, interacts with the realities of, of caregiving. You know, I am I am a parent to a 17-year-old daughter. And so my caregiving, you know, began when um, you know, when when she was born. Um, I'm I'm lucky enough to have um a great husband who who shares in, in caregiving responsibilities. You know, even at that time, you know, I made decisions in my career to allow me time to spend with my daughter. And as, as my life progressed, um, you know, my, my dad became ill. Um, luckily, my mom was there to, to, to take most of the burden of that caregiving. 
but he was in a wheelchair for the last two years of his life. And so living that with him gave me a, an entirely new perspective on what it's like to live with a, with a disability like that. And then after my dad died, um, my mother lost her vision and she had been living in, um, in a ranch in the middle of nowhere. And so she had to move to Austin um, and we were able to get her into an independent living facility. But my husband and I um, are responsible for her. And then I'm like, I'm the classic sort of sandwich generation, right? Where we've got, um, we're, we're caregiving our, our parents. Um, and then our daughter, and I'm still sort of searching for all of the right vocabulary for all of this, but, but our daughter has developed into what I would call a, a high needs child um, and developed serious, um, very serious mental health issues. And so going through that process with her has really opened my eyes about um, the struggles that people with mental health issues, mental health struggles endure and how it affects the workplace. And so I have a, I have a completely sort of new perspective on that as I, you know, guide employers through accommodating employees with mental health conditions. Um, it's, it's, it's been an interesting, an interesting ride, not for the faint of heart. No. Well, and you know, you know, I think we're both Gen X. And um, when I started my company 24 years ago, uh, we, you know, Christy was pregnant with our first child. And, you know, we, you know, now we got them through college and we've had two more. And, but I had, you know, because I ran my own show, uh, you know, I had a lot more flexibility um, you know, and I could do things and be there and give her relief when she needed it. And so I was like in, but we've, you know, through with our employees for all over the years, we've, you know, we've had a lot of young parents, uh, and then we went remote and the young parents were at home with their kids and we've, we've had, you know, we've scooped on an extra level of grace around, around that. And, and at what co childcare is costing now, it's just not reasonable and there's not a lot of childcare available in a lot of places. And a lot of my employees, when we went remote, they moved to places that were rural or, you know, you know, where they wanted to live, which is great, but they didn't have the childcare. So they're, you know, they're, they're relying on friends, family or things like that, which isn't always reliable. And so um, I think it's, and then, like you said, that sandwich generation, mine is my grandmother who's in her 90s and, and caring for her uh, a lot over the past year. It's, I think, you know, I, you know, Gen X, we're the most resilient, I think, of all the, you know, no matter what they say of all the generations. But, uh, and I think finally our parents are going to finally appreciate us. But, uh, you know, I think trying to find a, a way to have a professional life and take care of the real responsibilities you have with your family and all that is a struggle for a lot of employees. And, uh, and I think most employers want to be responsive to that, uh, but they're not sure how. And I think too often the concern about, oh, we got to treat everybody exactly the same and always do this. 
gets in the way of employers being compassionate sometimes or finding ways to take care of, help an employee meet a specific need. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. Although, you know, one of the things I always tell my, my clients is, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so it's, I, I unfortunately have seen many examples of my clients who, who, um, who are really trying to do the right thing and help someone out and somehow it gets twisted and something bad happens. And then we sort of fall back into this robotic, you know, I'm going to do, you know, follow the law, black letter, and I'm not going to deviate. And and that's not the answer either. But, you know, it's interesting, Mike, that you talked about being a, a business owner. Um, you know, I started my practice at a, at a big international law firm and left about 12 years ago now, in large part because I wanted to be present in my parenting. And people often ask me, right? I often get asked, you know, like, how do you, how do you do it? You know, how do you do it all? And, you know, I think that especially when it comes to caregiving, um, sort of beyond being a sort of a mere parent, which is hard enough. Um, the answer, unfortunately, is you need more time to give to your caregiving role. I would say it is impossible or I haven't found sort of the, the time saving hacks to work 40 hours a week and also do everything else that I'm supposed to do in all of my caregiving responsibilities. And so to me, one of the things that's interesting is sort of as we return from the office and we've got this debate about work from home and we're all kind of, we're reimagining the workplace, right? You know, I think that part of the change that we're going to see in the workforce is that workers, employees are going to, they're going to demand flexibility. Um, they're, they're going to demand sort of jobs that we haven't quite imagined yet, you know, um, that that allows someone to to do a task to perform work that is something like less than forty hours a week, um, and certainly being a business owner, I have a lot of flexibility, and there's no way, no way that I could do what I do and not have the flexibility of my of my own business. Right, and I think flexibility is key. I mean giving employees the ability to work the way they want to work uh, is, is going to be key for attracting and retaining them. But I think the employers who do that are having a better job and, uh, you know, doing a better job of retaining them, but also just getting better output from the employees because they're not distracted while, you know, they know they can go take care of this thing and then come back and work. And maybe, you know, and it's 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 maybe less of a work-life balance and more of a work-life integration where we're just going to, you know, I have this many hours in a, in a given week. I'm going to get my job done. I'm going to, you know, I'm not exempt and I've got to work the hours uh, or, I'm, you know, I'm exempt. I'm going to get this job done and I'm still going to take care of these things. But um, and it's not just, you know, we talked about parents and uh, kids, but spouses who have issues, you know, it's not always a long-term care thing, right? It's, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I've got a spouse who can't drive suddenly and I've got to help, you know, we've got to cover that and get this person from point A to point B and, and things like that. And I think a lot of employers expect still, 
and maybe it's because I'm based in Texas, but I think it's just it's probably still our our gut cultural instinct is that well the the women are going to be the caregivers, and so when a man wants caregiving, I mean much less a man asks for uh, you know all, his paid time off uh, when he becomes a parent or anything like that that you've gotten your policies and your benefits package, but you're actually going to do that. I think it raises eyebrows, and so I, I think we've still got a lot of ideas that don't serve as well as employers uh, around those roles and and who should fill them and how they should be taken things should be taken care of. I, I think that's absolutely right. And and one of the things that is is interesting here, you know, caregiver discrimination seems to hurt both men and women in, in different ways, I think, but but it 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 affects it affects both both of our genders. Um, and certainly we, you know, to add non-binary in there, it really sort of blows people's minds. Um, but, you know, I said this like 20 years ago, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad that I'm sort of still saying it again today. But I think for women to advance in the workforce, men have to um, assume more of a more more of a caregiving role, right? And and they they need to take their leave, and it's not just to help sort of their wives at home, right? It's to it's to create sort of um, you know two equal workers, if you will, right? Because you're human, because you have family, and 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 the definition of family, even I think we have to sort of rethink that, right? Because people have different concepts of, of what is family. But when someone has someone in their, in their family um, who needs care, whether it be short-term or long-term, you know, I, I think that in order to retain talent, in order to attract talent, um, employers are going to have to be creative in how they, in, in, in how they address those, those circumstances. So yeah, I, uh, the and you know, and every relationship's different, and you know, there's uh, and some people are, you know, and I, I've I've got a former employee who, when they had their first child, they decided he was going to be the stay-at-home dad. Uh, he was just wired for that in a certain way that that they decided was best, and uh, and he's, you know, he's done amazing. Um, I would have, I would have been climbing the walls and it's, you know, it's just that, you know, everybody's, you know, we've all got in, but you know, uh, whatever family makeup you've got, you've got to figure out what to do and how to do it. So when you're working with your clients and, and caregiver issues come up in the workplace, what are some examples of things that, you know, an employer might have to respond to or address? I think that the, the, real sort of issues, if you will, are around accommodations um, for employees who either need, you know, a short bit of time off to deal with an emergency situation um, and that it may not sort of fit into, you know, the FMLA bucket and it may not fit into the ADA bucket. So what are we going to do, right? What is our culture going to be? And so I advise clients a lot in these sort of gray situations, you know, what do they want to do, right? And there's, there's legal implications, but then there's also, it, it's mostly a, a cultural decision. But, you know, if someone's mom, you know, far away, right, gets sick, and this, ha- this is a very recent issue that came up, 
um, her, her mother got ill for some, some reason and she wanted to go work remote for six weeks because her mom lived in a different state. And so, you know, could that employer accommodate that? Um, and, you know, we approached it, even though we didn't have to, we approached it under sort of an ADA accommodation analysis. I mean, ultimately, unfortunately for that employer, they didn't, they didn't, they don't typically employ people outside of Texas. And so to accommodate that worker would have required a lot of administrative red tape. And so I can't you mean remember. like paying taxes, registering the company, doing withholding taxes in that state and all of that. Yes. Yes. And that's something I think a lot of us learn from remote work. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get sort of off topic, but, you know, that we, we all learned that lesson when we were I was asked, right. Oh, can I my employee wants to go you know, spend COVID in the Bahamas. Can we accommodate that? And I'm like, Well, you can, but it's really hard. So I think they worked a separate deal with her where I think they got like maybe they gave her two weeks off and then two weeks unpaid and then two weeks PTO. So they found a way. It wasn't sort of her the, the original way that came to her or, or to us, but um, but we did find a way to, to work with her. So that's an I mean, that's a great example. Right. Because then that's sort of this elder care situation that when we talk about caregiving, we can sometimes forget, but, but, you know, our elders need care too a lot. And there's a, there's a real, you know, shortage. Um, we had, um, uh, an episode earlier this year where we talked about, uh, the ready nation report that talked about the shortage in childcare that's just available. And so if somebody has a designated childcare person, uh, you know, either a facility or, uh, you know, somebody that they pay to come in or a family member or whatever. But if that falls through for whatever reason, you know, on a, on a Thursday morning, you get a call from your caregiver that, you know, Hey, I, I you know, I'm running a temperature. I, uh, I can't, or, or you wake up and your kid is sick and, and, and the, the daycare won't take them any of that. Suddenly this person who needs to be working, whether they're a remote worker or need to be in the office physically, they don't have care. And so what are you going to do? What are you going to do there? Uh, and I think that gives a lot of employers a struggle. Uh, you know, do we have a hard and fast attendance policy? And, and we're going to, we're actually going to ding this person for, you know, under our attendance policy. So we treat everybody fairly and, you know, and maybe we need to revisit why we have that policy set up that way. And, uh, and uh, does it give us the, the ability to respond? Uh, but I just, you know, people are working often for their families, you know, and and uh, and we want to you want to try to find a way to be responsive. I think a lot of employers want to. But let's go to that. You mentioned it earlier that where is that balance between, OK, our policy says this and maybe it's it's written pretty loosely. But what we actually do in practice for everybody is this. And this person, though, needs something else, uh, and we don't have a legal responsibility to do it, so we can't defend our ch our differences from you know using ADA or something. How would you guide an employer uh, to to make a decision in that case? So one thing overall, I would say, when thinking about making policies, 
I prefer policies that are flexible and are sort of non-specific around the reasons for leave. Um, and that may or may not be an unpopular opinion, but but my point is that your your scenario happens all the time to me, right? Clients call me and they're like, well, you know, this doesn't really fit in any of our policies, but, you know, we really like this person and, you know, they're a great worker, they're a great person and, and we want to accommodate them, right? We, we, we want to do this thing for them. And so one of the things I try to do is on the front end, right, try to get employers to make policies that they can fit various situations into. And so especially like around unpaid leave, there's no reason to be super specific in your policy unless you really want to sort of live with it, right? If you really want to narrow the only time you're ever going to give unpaid leave is this one scenario, then what I tell them is, then you got to live with it. And when you call me and ask, can, can I accommodate this person? I'm going to say no. <laughs> right. And so, and so we work on policies on the front end to be neutral enough to accommodate various kinds of situations. Um, and that's tricky, right? Because if you leave it too open-ended, then your policy suggests you have to you have to accommodate sort of anything and everything, and so it's it's an art, um, not a science. But but I, I think that policies like that, um, especially for employers who want to have flexibility in how they accommodate various life situations, I think those those more open ended policies are actually better than than the closed end policy. And so if, if the policy isn't, if it's a more traditional kind of policy, right, that we, you know, we only allow, you know, this unpaid leave in XYZ situation and this is an ABC situation, then it's sort of like the example I gave earlier, right? We, we try to think through, okay, are we, are we discriminating against anyone for any reason if we, if we allow this accommodation and we do we understand, is it the case that by allowing this one accommodation, then that means we have to allow the same type of accommodation in the future? And, and a lot of times the employee, the employer says, oh, that's fine. We, we would accommodate, you know, anyone in this situation, right? If someone's spouse had cancer or whatever, I mean, that's going to fall maybe under the FLA, but, but whatever their situation is, um, employers, and, and, you know, in my experience are often saying, well, well, we'll always accommodate this no matter, you know, no matter sort of if it's a different person or, or not. And then, and then, you know, like I said, in my other example, sometimes for reasons that, that I believe are legitimate, right. You know, too much red tape to, to, you know, have an employer or an employee in a different state. Um, there's other ways to, to try to accommodate them. So just to cover it, uh what are the risks that an employer faces if they don't treat everybody the same? If their policies are stricter or even if they, they have a lot of flexibility, but different employees in the same circumstances do get different opportunities. Maybe we say this guy's a really, you know, high, high producing employee. And so we're going to, you know, make this accommodation for him because of his service and all the value he brings. But this other uh, employee who 
who's asking for a similar accommodation, but she's only been with, she's only been with us for six months and she's still learning. And, you know, are we really getting into, a, you know, a behavior pattern here, this early in employment? What, what's the risk an employer faces with in, in that kind of situation? Well, the risk is, is a claim of gender discrimination, right? You've, you've made an accommodation for a male employee, but now you're denying accommodation for a female employee. And in that situation, what I do with my clients is we walk through the risk, right? Like I ask them, well, tell me your business reasons for accommodating him, but not accommodating her. And we, we look at those reasons. And if, if we feel like they're strong enough, right, you know, can we defend those reasons in court, then we may go ahead and, and deny the second accommodation or, you know, people aren't perfect. And so sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll deal with an HR person and they're like, huh, well, you know, my, my HR colleague, you know, granted it, but I don't know why it doesn't really make any sense to me. Like, I don't really, you know, these situations aren't, aren't really that different. Um, and it's like, well, to, to reduce your legal risk, we're going to go ahead and, and, you know, grant the second accommodation, just like we granted the first one. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. One of my favorite HR conferences every year is HR Southwest, the Texas Sherm State Conference. This year, it is on October 15th through the 18th in beautiful Fort Worth, Texas. Imperative will be there as a sponsor, and I'm hosting two sessions on artificial intelligence in HR. If two and a half days of upskilling, reskilling, and networking isn't enough for you, I'll be holding court at Whiskey and Rye across the street from the convention center most nights. Come find me. Tell me this is your favorite podcast, and I'll probably buy you a drink. You can register at hrsouthwest.org. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 110 and enter the keyword caregiver. That's C-A-R-E-G-I-V-E-R. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Allison Bowers. So let's get into the the the, the main legal issues. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the soft and, and, you know, cuddly part of it, you know, and how we want to try to accommodate people. But what, what are the requirements out there for employers who are dealing with caregivers? What laws really govern uh, those situations? So in Texas, um, there aren't that many laws that protect caregivers. There are zero Texas laws. Um, and so all of the, the protection in Texas um, comes from the federal laws. Um, the one that we're most familiar with is FMLA, right? You know, FMLA doesn't apply to everybody, right? It only applies to employers who have 50 or more employees in a 75-mile radius. And your employee, remember, has to be covered as well. And they have to work so many hours. What is it? 1250, right? And so... FMLA doesn't cover every employee and every employer out there. But, but assuming that you're covered, right, 
it covers more than just um, um, parental leave, right? I mean, I think a lot of us, when we think of FMLA, we think of um, parental leave, right? Um, but you can also use FMLA to care for a child, a spouse, or a parent who has a serious health condition as defined by the FMLA. Now, what's interesting is that child is defined fairly broadly under the FMLA to cover a foster child, a stepchild, even a legal ward, and there's even more um, broad language, you know, a person, a, a, I'm reading here, a child of a person standing in loco parentis, right? So if you're in a parental role of some kind, you're going to be covered by the FMLA. What the FMLA doesn't cover are in-laws, for example, right? Your mother-in-law, your father-in-law. It doesn't cover a sibling, right? A sister or a brother. It doesn't cover an aunt or an uncle. And so it's a useful tool for caregivers, right? But it's not, it's not perfect. And of course, FMLA is, is unpaid. Um, employers can choose to pay some portion of it. Some of them do, but legally it's not required to be paid. What is that serious medical condition under, how, how does, I mean, my kids got strep throat and I need to, you know, they can't go to school and I need to stay home uh, for a couple of days. Is that, does that, is that implicate the F FMLA or how far does it have to be? And, and what is the serious medical condition? Yeah. I mean, I think of it sort of like um, um, the way we would almost think of like disability these days, you know, a strep throat is not, is not going to be covered by FMLA, but if, if a child has, um, this happened to a friend of mine, um, tonsillitis that gets complicated and they end up in the hospital for a week, um, you know, that's going to be covered. Um, and so it's not going to cover those sort of day-to-day, -day, you know, viruses, right, that parents, you know, suffer with. <laughs> um, but it will, it will tend to cover, you know, again, not everything, but most things that are going to be experienced by our elders, right? So surgeries, long-term, you know, broken hips, right? Um, and other sort of more longer-term conditions, even if they're temporary, um, those are going to be considered serious health conditions under the FMLA. Okay, so that helps. So, and then what's another? What's an, you you were going to mention another one, another law that was of concern? Yeah. So sometimes, and we've we've talked about this a little bit throughout our podcast. It's Title Seven, and so this is the law that says essentially that employers have to treat men and women the same, right? Unless there's sort of a, a good reason not to. And, and of course, there's other protected characteristics as well. But most of the time when we're talking about caregiving, it comes up in the terms of, of gender. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, if an employer has a, um, a, a maternity leave policy, right, that lets women um, take off after the birth of a child, but they don't have that same corresponding policy for men, that's, and I'm going to asterisk this, that's going to be a problem under Title VII. And the only way that employers can justify a different policy 
as if they have some portion of their policy apply to um, the the post-birth disability, right? And so I see policies that say, okay, we're going to give women eight weeks of leave and we're going to consider two of those weeks disability. And then, um, and then we're going to give the men six weeks, right? Um, because, you know, he doesn't have the, the, the two extra weeks of, of, of physical disability. I, I think those, I mean, those policies are going to be okay under the law if, as long as they're sort of reasonable. What, what I really have a problem with and what I really see come up in problematic ways, even though a lot of people have these policies, is the policy around the primary caregiver versus the secondary caregiver. I don't like those policies. And here's why. I had a client call me after I told them, do not, do not create this policy. They ignored me um, and they did it anyway. And then they called me and they said, well, we have a man who, who says he's the primary caregiver. And I said, well, is that an issue? Well, I don't see the pro- what's, what's the problem? Well, that can be right. He's a man. (laughs) Well, and so eventually they got to the question of, you know, well, what can we, what can we ask for him to show us, right, to prove that he was the primary caregiver? And my response was, well, have have women made sort of claims of leave under this policy? Oh, yeah, of course. Did you ever, did did they claim to be primary caregivers? Well, of course, they're women. Well, did you require them to submit any sort of proof that they were the primary caregiver? Well, of course not. And then I said, well, you can't require it of the man either. And they did listen to me the second time. But those policies around primary and secondary caregivers, and I know what these employers are trying to do. I know that mostly their heart is really good on this because they're trying to sort of help women. But I think those policies can backfire a lot. And so my preference would be to just have a completely gender neutral policy that says if you're a new parent, you get X number of weeks or you get certain number of weeks paid or you get additional weeks over FMLA, whatever your policy is. That's my preference. And then my second preference is a policy around disability. But you have to sometimes think through what is... you know, a lot of times we sort of borrow from the short-term disability rules and we say a cesarean is six weeks and a a non-complicated birth is, I think, four weeks. And so that's, I think, an okay policy as well. Um, But I really don't like those primary and secondary caregiver policies. Makes sense. And when you're talking about disability, it's not ADA disability. It's, uh, you know, short-term you know, uh, you know, related just to the, you know, the birth and, and all the stuff that happens there. Are there situations where the ADA would kick in for uh, an employer's caregiver considerations or maybe an employer steps into it unintentionally? So the ADA typically applies to only your employee's disability, right? So only sort of their physical or mental problem, right? And we all know, you can't discriminate against someone for having a disability and, and you have to accommodate them, right? As long as it's reasonable and doesn't cause an undue burden. So there's no obligation of accommodation 
um, if, if you're caring for someone who is legally disabled. But there is a, a prohibition about sort of discrimination by association. And so an employer cannot discriminate against an employee because they are taking care of a disabled individual. Okay. And so that would be a situation like, besides the obvious just jerk, eugenics kind of worldview, um, maybe an employer that says, okay, this person, this job requires a lot of travel, and this person's got a special needs child. We just don't think they're going to be able to to do this, regardless of where they've demonstrated they could in the past or whatever else. And so based on that, that would be the kind of discrimination ADA would would call uh, call into question. Yes. Yes. Interesting. I'm hoping those are exceedingly rare uh, in 2023. I mean, you know, I can't think of an example in my career where this has come up, but I still unfortunately get calls around pregnancy, right? Like I've just hired someone. I didn't know they were pregnant. And they just told me, you know, they're whatever, six months pregnant and they're going to be taking leave in, you know, six months. And I was not prepared for that. Is there anything I can do? And the answer is no, there's not. You know, I mean, other than, you know, follow yeah. your policy around around leave. Um, they weren't honest with me when we were. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. same. I argument. still get the pregnancy stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So any other policies that an employer that just you know, wants to be helpful to caregivers. Any other ideas or things that you think an employer can do to help help them uh, help caregivers' lives be easier and help them be more productive as employees? So, the EEOC put out some guidance. I can't I can't remember when they put it out, and it's not binding. And they say it's not binding because they're like, you know, there's very few legal protections, but they made this really nice list of things an employer could do to be sensitive to the needs of caregivers. And it's really comprehensive. I think if you just probably Google EEOC caregiver guidelines, you should be able to find it. But lots of good ideas. Um, The main idea, as you might expect, and again, Mike, as you and I have already talked about, is around flexibility, right? Flexible schedules, work from home, um, you know, don't schedule meetings during, you know, certain times, right? Be sensitive if someone's got to, you know, they take their mom to physical therapy every day at three, or they pick up their kid, or they've got this therapy or that therapy, Um, you know, things like that. Um, And it also has some good ideas about sort of rooting out biases, um, because I do think that, like a lot of biases, they're still there. They're sort of under the radar and sometimes they're, sometimes they're pretty blatant and, and, and obvious. Um, but it talks about ways to sort of be inclusive. And so, for example, um, if someone is on sort of a, a quote, part-time schedule, right, um, you know, still include that person in important, significant work. Um, but just know that they're not, you know, they're going to be working, you know, 25 hours a week instead of 40 or or whatever it is. But there's lots of concrete good suggestions that come out of the EEOC. And we'll we'll find that document and I'll include it in the show notes if anybody uh, goes to look for it. 
Well, thank you, Allison. That's all the time we have, but I really appreciate you joining me today. You're welcome, Mike. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who is basically my nine to five caregiver. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.